Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to Pages and Popcorn podcast, the podcast where we, Kelia and Jennifer, Talk about movies based on books. Today we will be talking about Born on the 4th of July, which was not a fiction book. We are revisiting the genre of a memoir. So it was a memoir that was published in the 70s and a movie that was made at the late 80s. And we will get more into details about Born on the 4th of July in a minute. But first, we want to tell you all the ways that you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a website where you can find show notes, and there are lots of show notes for today's episode, as well as information about upcoming episodes and information about how you can support the show. Speaking of supporting the show, there's two major ways to support the show. One is, of course, becoming a patron. $1 or $5 a month will help us financially, and we'll also get you supplemental episodes and the episodes, the regular episodes, Deliver to your inbox earlier than regularly scheduled. And the other major way that you can support us is by rating and reviewing us on platforms like iTunes or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So we would also like to invite you to send us a message or a feedback or an opinion piece. You can do that in voice memos or by email at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, we would like to make sure that you know that you can find us on social media primarily Facebook, a tiny bit on Twitter, which is Pages and Popcorn Podcast in your search bar. And those links are also on our website. So there we go. Those are all the ways you can get in touch with us. Thank you for getting in touch with us. We are building a community episode. And um, I know that we try to keep these episodes evergreen and kind of in their own place, but I'm going to ruin that right now and say that in the next couple months, we'll be doing an episode on Cheryl Stroyed's 
Wild, which is about somebody who hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. So if you have hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, or you want to hike the Pacific Crest Trail, or you're still in the process of hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, maybe while listening to this podcast, I don't know what the reception is out there. I suppose you could download it. Whatever. We want to hear from you, your opinions about the Pacific Crest Trail and whether or not you feel like the book or the movie was an accurate portrayal. Um, Maybe you didn't even read the book or watch the movie, but you did hike and you have an adventure story you want to share. You can email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. You can drop us a line on our social media and we want to hear from you for an upcoming episode of, you guessed it, Pages and Popcorn Podcast. And now I will turn off my radio voice and go back to my regular Kalia voice and, uh, Anything else we want to say in the intro, Jennifer? Nope. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Born on the 4th of July was published in 1976. It is the best-selling memoir of Ron Kovic, a paralyzed Vietnam War veteran who became an anti-war activist. Kovac was born on July 4th, 1946, and his book's ironic title echoes a famous line from George M. Cohen's patriotic 1904 song, The Yankee Doodle Boy, also known as Yankee Doodle Dandy. The book was adapted into the 1989 Academy Award-winning film by the same name, co-written by Oliver Stone and Ron Kovac, starring Tom Cruise. Here is the recap of the memoir. Ron Kovic grows up in a leave-it-to-beaver-but-earlier-than-that sort of rose-tinted America, full of Boy Scouts playing baseball, running the neighborhood with his friends, suffering through high school, etc., with dreams of being like John Wayne and Mickey Mantle, someday being a Marine. He takes a lot of pride in his athletic ability and, again, really wants to be a hero. He enlists in the Marines at age 17, lives through a brutal boot camp, and then is shipped off to Vietnam, where he accidentally kills a fellow soldier, is part of an accidental massacre of children, and then in a firefight is shot and paralyzed from the chest down. He ends up in a VA hospital and it is pretty awful. There's neglect and abuse. Eventually he is released and returns home. He learns to use his wheelchair and to drive and to live without the use of his legs. He is used as a prop in a local 4th of July parade and his love and idealization of the military starts to tarnish. He is obviously very depressed. Specifically, he is depressed and angry about his impotence. He has no sensation at all lower than his chest and therefore cannot make love or, in his words, be loved by a woman. He tries prostitutes, but to no avail. At one point, he goes to Mexico to a resort of sorts for veterans, and he is well taken care of, but he gets bored with the monotony and returns to the States. Eventually, he enrolls in college and gets his own place. He's starting to have more independence. The protests against the war are getting more and more on his radar. Of course, the military and soldiers are pretty anti-the-war demonstrators. They consider them traitors and commies, and so does Ron, until Kent State. The protests there, where the unarmed protesters were killed, really trigger something in Ron's psyche. He is horrified about the brutality that the police show to the protesters, the unarmed protesters. This ends up being his radicalization moment. He ends up joining the protests and becomes a very vocal anti-war demonstrator. He gives talks, he goes on the news whenever possible, he uses his wheelchair to stop traffic, he gets beat up and jailed for all of this multiple times. He's angry and he's channeling his anger into action. He has a brief romance with a woman named Helen who has kids and he almost marries her but realizes that that's not what he actually wants. What he wants is to stop the war, to use his injury and his PTSD and baggage for good. At the end of the book, he and the other protesters manage to disrupt Nixon's re-election acceptance speech in Florida when he joins a massive pseudo-army of war vets who descend upon Miami to protest Nixon and the roar.
The book was not written in pure chronological order, unlike my recap. It jumped around a lot and has a few interesting narrative aspects worth mentioning. First, there are sections that are stream of consciousness, almost rambling nightmares that slip and slide through time and plot like dreams. This obviously relates to Kovac's PTSD. Also, the point of view changes from first to third, specifically when he is in the war in the VA hospitals and dealing with the horrible aspects, it's in third person, which seems to be a way that Kovac uses to distance himself from the trauma. The climax of the book, Interrupting Nixon in Florida, is followed by the actual flashbacks of the war, the death of the other soldier, the massacre, and the firefight where he is injured. These things had been hinted upon in reference, but not flat out told until the very end. The final chapter of the book is a dream stream that is haunting and sad, and then there's a letter that his parents received extolling his virtues as an all-American boy with such deep love for his country and the military. The irony is heavy and thick. So, to recap my recap, poignantly told story of a boy who was born on the nation's birthday, grew up in the Americas of John Wayne, Howdy Doody, John F. Kennedy, and Sputnik, who played baseball and stickball, had girlfriends, joined the Boy Scouts, enlisted in the Marine Corps, story of killing, being killed in the battlefields of Southeast Asia, the story of coming back to a town built by veterans to, to, of a prouder war who didn't understand the veterans of Vietnam. It's an account of one man and one community, but it could be the account of a whole generation and a whole country. It's a story of the American dream, Kovac says, becoming the American nightmare. That was the book. And then there's the movie. Scroll to there. Okay. As I already said, it was a 1989 American biographical war drama film based on the, the book by the same name. It was directed by Oliver Stone, written by Stone and Kovac. It stars Tom Cruise, as well as a few other people of note, Kira Cedric, Raymond J. Berry, uh, Jerry Levine, Frank Wally, and William Defoe. The film depicts the life of Kovic Cruz over a 20-year period detailing his childhood, his military service, and paralysis during the Vietnam War and his transition to anti-war activism. And here is the recap for that. The film opens in 1956 in Massapequa, New York, with a 10-year-old Ron Kovic playing war with his friends in the forest. On his 4th of July birthday, he attends an Independence Day parade with his family and best friends. There is some foreshadowing as the military vets in this parade don't look overly thrilled and they flinch at the fireworks, etc. We see Ron grow up. As a teenager, he is on his school's wrestling team but doesn't win the big match and is very disappointed. Then the combination of Marine recruitment visit, President John F. Kennedy's inspirational speech of ask not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country, and the general toxic indoctrination of the town with slogans like better dead than red, anti-communism, the commies are going to come and take over everything, leads Ron to join the United States Marine Corps. His decision receives support from his mother but upsets his father who's a World War II vet. Ron has an awkward, then romantic moment with his school crush Donna at the high school prom and then leaves for basic training. Flash forward to October 1967. Ron is now a Marine sergeant on a reconnaissance mission in Vietnam during his second tour of duty. He and his unit kill a number of Vietnamese villagers after mistaking them for enemy combatants. They are horrified. After encountering enemy fire, they flee the village and abandon the sole survivor, a crying baby. During the retreat, Ron accidentally kills Wilson, a young private in his platoon. He reports the action to his superior, who ignores the claim and advises him not to say anything else. In January 1968, Ron is critically wounded during a firefight, but is rescued by a fellow Marine. Paralyzed from the mid-chest down, he spends several months in recovery at the Bronx Veterans Hospital in New York. 
The hospital's conditions are poor. The doctors and nurses ignore the patients. There's drug abuse and there is old, outdated, and not working equipment. Against his doctor's request, Ron desperately tries to walk again with the use of braces and crutches, only to damage his legs further and confine himself permanently to the wheelchair. In 1969, Ron returns home and turns to alcohol after feeling increasingly neglected and disillusioned. During an Independence Day parade, he's asked to give a speech, but is unable to finish after he hears a crying baby in the crowd and has a flashback to Vietnam. He also, while riding in the parade, flinches at the sounds of the firecrackers. Ron visits his friend Donna in Syracuse, New York, where the two reminisce. While attending a vigil for the victims of Kent State shootings, they are separated while Donna and the other protesters are taken away by police for demonstrating against the Vietnam War. In Massapequa, a drunken Ron has a heated argument with his mother and his father decides to send him to Villa Dolce, the Sweet Villa, a Mexican haven for wounded vet Vietnam veterans. He has his first sexual encounter with a prostitute whom he falls for until he sees her with another customer. He befriends Charlie, another paraplegic, and the two decide to travel to another village after kick getting kicked out of a bar. But after annoying their taxi cab driver, they're stranded on the side of the road. They argue. It's very cathartic. Eventually, they're picked up by a truck driver who takes them back to Villa Dolce. Ron travels to Armstrong, Texas, where he visits Wilson's tombstone, and then he visits the fallen soldier's family in Georgia to confess his guilt. Wilson's widow, Jamie, explains that she will be unable to forgive him, but maybe God can, but the parents of the, of the dead soldier are more sympathetic. In 1972, Ron joins the organization Vet Vietnam Veterans Against the War and travels to the Republican National Convention in Miami, Florida. As Richard Nixon is giving an acceptance speech for his presidential nomination, Ron expresses to a news reporter his hatred of the war and the government for abandoning the American people. His comments enrage Nixon supporters, and his interview is cut short when police attempt to remove and arrest him and other protesters. Ron and the veterans manage to break free from the officers, regroup, and charge the hall again, though not successfully. Flash forward to 1976, Ron delivers a public address to the Democratic National Convention in New York following the publication of his autobiography, The End. Uh, how had you heard of this book or movie? Had you heard, I mean, of this book and movie? So I remember watching the film uh, as a rental when it came out, and I was a little too young to watch it then. Um, at the time, I was just like, Ugh, what is this? What is this nonsense? Watching it again as an adult, oh, oh my, very different reception. Um, as far as the book, I really didn't know that much about Ron Kovac or that it was a book until we were looking at this podcast. And then, oh, it is a book. Let's let's read it. Yeah, same thing. I remember seeing the preview, not the preview, I remember seeing a movie poster for it um, at the movie theater in probably 1989, 1990, going to see probably some family film because I was eight or nine years old around that time um, and not really getting it. But I kind of knew who Tom Cruise was because I had seen Top Gun because uh, my dad loves planes and Top Gun is fucking awesome. So we had seen Top Gun and I knew that Tom Cruise was from Top Gun and my mom referenced Tom Cruise being, I think, risky business and like she... Anyways, had, had explained the joy of the of the dancing in your underoos and your t-shirt, whatever. La la la. Anyways, so I knew who Tom Cruise was. and But I hadn't really ever given this any thought. I had no idea that it was a, about the Vietnam War or a veteran. I just assumed it was some Tom Cruise being awesome pro-America stuff. Uh, until looking at lists of, of potential books and movies for this podcast. So if nothing else, this definitely put it more on my radar. Although I know I was in the minority when I talked to other people, a lot of people knew what it was. So that was just me. Um, yeah. So then got the book, read the book. 
and then saw the movie and yeah it uh, yeah I'll save my my summation for the end here but yeah um geez okay so one thing that we do is we talk about the differences between the books and the movie and there's a couple of key differences that I think are worth noting. Obviously, and here's always the caveat, they have to leave some things out and they add things in for dramatic effect and sometimes they combine things or, you know, whatever. I get that. Um, so like one thing that goes into that category of like changes you totally expect and understand is they skipped all of boot camp in the movie. There's no boot camp in the movie. He basically goes from kissing the girl at prom to being in Vietnam. He already, you know, we know he's gonna sign up and go. Um, and I thought that was fine. Like, we don't need more boot camp. We all know boot camp. Um, but one change that they made that I didn't particularly think fits into that category of understandable was the inclusion of that random girl, the girl in that he was in high school with that he liked, that she liked him and they were kissing and then he went and saw her in Syracuse. Like, her whole, she didn't exist in the book. And I thought... At first I was like, I guess maybe they needed to kind of round him out so that, you know, it would be more tragic when he becomes impotent because he never even got to be with that girl. And so like all of, you know, missed opportunities. But I don't even know if he really needed that um, to get the sadness of his situation at the end. But then I was, I was thinking if they didn't have her in the movie, then the only other women in the movie would have been his mother and the Mexican prostitutes. So we've talked before on this podcast about the dichotomy of the Madonna whore dichotomy and the maiden mother crone aspect of women in film. And so even though um, in the book, his mother is there, but she is not a major part. There's no, you know, huge fight. Like there's a huge fight in the movie between him and his mom. And there's, there was layers of that early on. And, you know, she catches him with a, like a porn mag early on when he's just showing off that he's a regular teenage kid. And, you know, so there's, there's been this trauma between, not trauma, but definitely this tension between Ron and his mother throughout the whole movie. And it really culminates in this screaming, shouting match of just anger, um, which isn't in the book. Then the, the high school sweetheart also not in the book. So in the book, the only real women um, are the Mexican prostitutes. And I guess they decided in the movie to kind of round out and, and, and you know, kind of, I don't know, round out the, the female experience. Anyway, so of course now there's the mother, there's the, the maiden, the, you know, the high school virgin, um, you know, who in the movie is part of what inspires him to get interested in the, the anti-war protests. And um, because he can't protect her, he can't save her, she gets, you know, taken away during the protest with the, the police being so brutal. And then the Mexican prostitutes, which are the, the wise women, um, not crone in, in terms of age, but crone in terms of experience, but also the whore, you know, so Madonna, mother whore. So I just thought that was that was an interesting change. You have thoughts on that at all or? I thought about it in those terms. Um, as I remember in the book, there was kind of like a girl he was sort of interested in and she totally dropped him after finding out about um, his injury. Yeah. But it, it was such a minor thing. It was maybe a couple lines. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's kind of into a girl, and then that wasn't reciprocated. Um, I've read a couple somewhat conflicting articles about his relationship with his mother. Um, initially, I had read that he and his mother 
talked a lot about his experiences and that's part of what helped him get through some of his PTSD because uh, it's not really said too much in either the book or the movie but his parents were both in the Navy so they both have experiences of war so that's interesting because I did not get that in the movie at all that his mother had yeah. been and it's like it almost seemed like she was a stand-in for the people who were super pro-war who hadn't ever actually been to war while his dad was a little bit more reserved with his encouragement because he'd actually been to war and so it was like playing on that you know you'd almost expect the father to be like rah rah you know pride and blah 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 but he, he wasn't so that is very interesting that the mom i do know in the foreword of the book i have the 40th anniversary edition and he thanks his mom for listening to him rant and rave and and for being there with him which again in the movie that was it was very we didn't they didn't they never fixed there's their relationship that. there's no yeah. like, real relationship almost um is she to me kind of as if you're going to kind of uh put her into a character arc or a character uh i guess stereotype almost she's a repressive american you know that you're not supposed to talk about sex you know when they have that fight she's like don't say that word that's a naughty word it's like penis and he starts screaming that and it's a scene that is almost laughable and so tragic at the same time mm -hmm. and she's horrified yeah, that the neighbors might hear and yeah yeah also he had a lot more siblings in the movie than i felt like he had in the book so it really was playing up this this mother this night this 50s mom you know late 50, and an early 60s mom stereotype of like it matters what the neighbors think i am repressive i don't want to show my emotions i'm very control very catholic that was like a major part of it and um and you well, know and, and the irony too like she says to him when he's trying to become a wrestler you know in high school like well what matters is that you try the best but then when he loses she looks super disappointed and pissed at him that he lost you know i so in real life he um is one of six siblings he's the second eldest so it just didn't figure heavily in his book no it really didn't it wasn't what it was his his childhood stuff in the book was about his his childhood with his friends it was much more about the guys on the street and playing stickball and and going to the movies and this and hero having a relationship with god was a big deal and mm -hmm. kind of yeah i thought this was well represented in the movie it's this idea of a leave it to beaver 1950s style everything's great about america idealization mm -hmm. and, um, and here's here's a fun little trivia thing um in the parade uh the soldier in the wheelchair who flinches at the fireworks that's ron kovic yeah yeah i read that too that's pretty cool i really like the way that that original opening couple scenes were done um the it's kind of saturated the, the coloring so it's not perfect and splashy and there's this trumpet sound like in those opening scenes it's it's like almost happy but there's this element of melancholy like you know something is there's like an undercurrent of not good going on um like almost the secret hidden unspoken negativity that was obviously very prevalent in the in the 50s and the early 60s you know especially in the, these white suburban america you know there's there is this 
awful negative undercurrent that was there. It's a very good showing of how foreshadowing works in movies. Mm -hmm. So my interpretation of that part of the book is that it was heavily idealized, but then it's also childhood. Mm -hmm. That's what you do as a child. Um, the novel, uh, this is kind of the biggest switch to me, is the novel is not told in sequence while the movie is. Right, and I referenced that in my recap. And there's there's mm-hmm. there's the first person, third person, there's the stream of consciousness stuff, and then there's it's all over the place. And um, to have there be like the double climax at the end with absolutely no, like not really any falling action. You know, it's the climax, it's almost two parallel stories. It's like... The story of Ron up until the trauma in Vietnam, and then the story of Ron post the trauma in Vietnam. And they both have their own climaxes. In the first story, the climax is what happens to him in Vietnam. And the second one, the climax is getting to the Republican convention. And of course, in the movie, thank goodness, they made it chronological, which I think works really, really well. But also, because the movie was made years later after the book came out, they were able to add to it and have an ending, you know, the the next thing that happened. He didn't just end with getting to the Republican convention and getting kicked out, but we had this great button of at the end, he's now at the Democratic convention years later, and he's going to be giving a speech. And, you know, he's getting more accepted. Um, although I did read a review that said basically the way you deal with your, you know, Vietnam trauma is you write a book, make a lot of money and give speeches. Apparently that's, you know, that's the lesson here. And I thought, well, that's fucking cynical. Thank you very much. Sit down. But, you know, there is definitely this thing at the end where he's signing autographs and he's now reached something. But like you talked about the foreshadowing, there were flashbacks in the movie. Um, they were flashbacks of the war and the trauma. And at the very end, when he's getting ready to give his big speech, his flashbacks are of his childhood and like the innocence and the good part. So it's like he's become a full person and now he can look at all aspects of his life and not just dwell on the, the overly negative part. So, yeah, the, I have another really big change, but do you want to say anything else about? I just want to say I thought it was smart storytelling in both medium, you know, this is something that we've talked about before. Because of the medium, you do have to change how you tell a story. If Kovac started with, oh, this is my happy childhood, it would have just felt really kind of boring and uh, whatever. When he starts off, it's like right after he's injured and the pain of that situation and the chaos of being in a VA hospital, it's instantly captivating as being horrific as it is. Yeah. So from a novel standpoint, some of those streams of consciousness make a lot of sense when he's talking about being in boot camp and is this very stream of consciousness, which I generally don't like, but I thought it worked well in the book. It, it, it works. It is kind of that, that odd surrealist uh, transfer of time because everything does get flattened when you have PTSD. Yeah. Well, so definitely- what was the other big change that you wanted to know? Um, so in both, he participates in friendly fire, although in the book, the fact that he killed the guy, that he actually, it was actually friendly fire, is a little bit more buried. Like, he talks about the death of the corporal a lot. The death of the corporal was a big deal. The death of the corporal, that corporal's dead. Um, but it's not made implicitly clear that he is the one who killed the corporal until the very end. 
Um, and so like, so that, okay. So that's a major thing, but then also that's what it is. He says, I killed the corporal and he has the whole thing where he tries to tell his upper up, you know, and they are like, no, I'm sure you're remembering it wrong. That's not the thing. Don't worry about it. Blah, blah, blah. In the movie though, it's, it's, it, there's, that happens obviously, you know, chronological. And then in the movie, he goes to the family and he apologizes and admits it to them. And that did not happen in, in the book. And it did not happen apparently in real life either. I looked, I couldn't find anything about that family's response to the book. Um, I found one thing where he said that he had apologized to them publicly in the book and then privately in the movie. And I thought, well, okay, so I, I don't know, but I don't know if you found that, but I just thought it was really interesting that they added that in. And Oliver Stone said that he knew it was fictionalizing that, but he wanted Kovic to have, um, it was important to his character to have that ability to breathe again and to have that catharsis and to be forgiven because the movie was about these veterans forgiving themselves and, you know, trying to get to a place where they could forgive other people for putting them in this horrible positions and move forward. Like, okay, like that happened, but now what can we do to stop it from happening again, which is very different from just existing in a place of anger. So I, I thought that was just a very interesting change. Did, what did you think about it? So two things about that. Uh, while I was looking at an interview with Oliver Stone, uh, he and Kovac worked together to write the screenplay, which I kind of wondered about because when you're the author of something so personal, it's sometimes hard to see that transformed into something else. Mm -hmm. You know, your book is your baby. And if it's about your life, I would imagine even more so. Um, but it looks like some of these experiences mirror what Stone went through when he was in the war. So his opinion of enemy or friendly fire is that about 15 to 20% of our warriors who were wounded was from friendly fire. And that's one of the reasons why that scene was so important to him. So that was a huge deal. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the issue of forgiveness, I have an interview with him that I want to read. So the interviewer asked, what would your 70 year old say to the 18 year old you? Uh, Kovacs response, I do everything I could to keep that boy and his friends home. I would respect those who went, but I do everything in my power to keep them home. Interviewer asked, what would you say to the 38-year-old you? Kovac, I'd tell him how proud I am for him for opposing the war. I'd remind him it's possible to love America and at the same time to criticize America. I'd tell him that he needs to forgive himself the way I needed to forgive myself because I took life out of this world. I pulled the trigger. So I can see where the movie would want to have a moment that does encapsulate that in some way. Yeah. And it was very moving. Um, the mom, the mother of the, the dead soldier, you know, seeing Kovic as a victim himself, not just the person who killed her child. It was incredibly moving. Um, I just, I'm very curious if the people whose son that actually was, you know, when they read this book and then, you know, I, yeah, I couldn't, that'd be a really hard way to find out. Um, and the corporal's not named in the book, which also probably is a thing in the movie he's Wilson, he's a private, like he has a couple of lines in the book. He's, he's just like a corporal. There's no name. Yeah. Given that was him. to protect the family. Yeah. I would imagine so. But that just, I mean, it would drive me crazy. 
Also, I guess it's a, but we got to reference it at some point. Um, Melina, who is name checked as somebody who's uh, one of the guys in Kovacs regimen, um, has come out in more recent years and said that that scene of the of how he was injured and rescued, etc., did not play out that way. The Marines did not run away. There was a you know this and that and the other thing. There was no black man in his regimen who could have picked him up and saved him. Um, and he's, there's a couple guys who are in that regiment who are very vocal that this is not how it happened and they're kind of bitter about it. Um, the guy Molina himself, it took him until the 2000 teens to come out and say anything about it. And part of that is because he spent 20 some odd years in federal prison. So he wasn't aware of the book or the movie. <laughs> so, um... For drugs, I don't know. It's it's like there's a whole, and I'll link to it in our show notes. But there's like a controversy now. One of them is writing their own book, and like you know, the interview like asked Kovic, and he's like, I haven't gotten anything from these guys. I don't know what you're talking about. And then they go back to Molina. He's like, Here's a certified letter that I sent, and I can prove that he signed for this letter. And it's like, okay, like I don't know. So there's there's stuff. But regardless, if they ran away or they ran back to get more ammunition and then came back, like he felt abandoned in that moment. Um, so yeah, anyways, I thought that was, that was just very interesting. <laughs> and I um, to I'll say this, like, if you ever talk to police officers, you're going to find this out is whenever they try to give people stories, everybody has a different story. Mm-hmm. I remember, uh, I had a job one time and there was uh, a potential theft. It was quite dramatic and there was a camera on it. Before I saw the video, I had five different people tell me what happened. And I saw the video. I was like, they're all kind of right. And they all got it a little bit wrong. Yeah. So yeah. It's night when that happened, when he was shot. So I can imagine there's a lot of chaos. He's massively damaged. Well, and then also, like, first of all, then he's writing about it later. And he's writing about his memory. And he's writing from a place of anger. So, like, it's very easy to be like, they abandoned me. You know, because, like, he's already feeling very betrayed at this point after, like, going through this in the veterans hospital and all that stuff. But then also, you know how if you if you tell a lie and then you say it over and over and over and over, it, like, basically rewires your brain. Like, this is a psychological thing. And then you cannot differentiate. You get to a certain point and that has become the truth for you. You can't differentiate it from something else. So... At this point, he's in his 70s, and he's been telling the same story for 50 years. You know what I mean? 40 years. And so to have someone else be like, well, that's not how it happened. It's like, well, okay. But I, at this point, and then I don't even know. He's if, also, like, he's in a state of higher arousal. Yeah. Uh, and that was one of the things early on when there's the shooting of the village. You know, he's saying, fire at my command. And then some soldier heard fire and fired. Yeah. So there are these mix-ups all the time. That's why I don't want to disbelieve Kovac or say he's wrong, but it just could have been the chaos of the situation that does not lend itself well beyond the emotional narration of the event. For sure. For sure. Um, Let's see here. I did find his line uh, about that incident kind of chilling. He talks about the soldier who rescued him, and he has no idea who that person is, and he'll never know who that person is. Mm-hmm. And they did that again in the movie. They had um, a black serviceman pick him up and carry him, and then at the end, um, during the big Republican convention 
protesty fight. He was again picked up by a, a black man and, and kind of rescued away. Um, so there was, there was symmetry there as well. Although another big change in the book, he got radicalized much earlier and was very vocal and very much a part of these protests and had, was getting regularly beat up and regularly arrested and all of this stuff. In the movie, it looks like he doesn't get radicalized until the very end. And then like the big Republican thing is like his debut protest, which is not true at all. I found the idea of that last patrol is what they called themselves with that all those veterans like descending upon Miami really interesting and there's actually a documentary about it um, you can find on, on IMDb and again I will put it in the show notes um, about this last patrol and it was a documentary made during the last patrol time and there's footage of Kovac on the convention floor um, that they like did shot for shot mirroring in the movie which I thought was just really interesting. Um, but yeah, like they, they did this, like, you know, the, the soldiers showed up and there was a ton of them, um, trying to make a statement. And of course, sadly, we know Nixon won in a landslide that year, but, um, but eventually, <laughs> but eventually 1970, but you know that technically the Vietnam war, I did not know this lasted it's still going. Well, no, if, if you look, according to the source that I looked at, it technically started around 1955 and it technically sort of kind of ended around 1975. Like those are like the dates that are given. So that's a 20 year war. That's, that's a long, long war. That's longer than, and it's not even, I know it's considered a police action and not technically a war because of declarations and such. But it's a long ass time and you're right there are still things happening there now and there was a lot of stuff in this book that felt very timely um not just for like afghanistan and the iraq war post 9 11 but uh in terms of the protests and the police brutality um to today and the black lives matter protests and people standing yes. up for yes it just it felt and it was like, oh, and then the police showed up with their this, and they were already in riot gear, and they waited until there was more of them than us, and then they waited in, and they just started beating the shit out of unarmed people. And I was like, oh, so you mean Seattle two weeks ago, or you mean Denver last week? Like, this is literally happening. I could not stop thinking about that when I was watching the film of, wow, we're still living in the 70s. Or, you know, we, we moved out of that decade, and now we're back into it. Yeah. It's really it's, interesting. The parallels are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And yeah. like the people who were there, if you think about the teenagers of the 70s, right, are the, the boomers of today, if I'm doing my math right. But like you and I are the children of those people. And it's us and the generation right behind us who are out there protesting today. And... Uh, I mean, obviously, there's people from all age groups protesting, but predominantly, it's the Gen X and the Millennials and the um, the Z. I guess is that the, that whatever um, the Zingers. I'll call them Zingers because I can't think of what they're called. The Millennials, then the Zingers, and the Gen X people who are out there right now. And I just thought that was just it's just fascinating. I just yeah, the whole thing was just really interesting. Like how there's nothing really new under the sun again. Um, Speaking of nothing new under the sun, at one point in the book, he talks about attending a protest in LA and Donald Sutherland is reading from a book called Johnny Got Your Gun and it, it really resonates with, with Kovac. And um, what? I was 
if I can jump in, there, there's some stuff about that scene I thought was really telling is when Kovac is trying to deal with war fatigue. And mm-hmm. so you'll have reporters going, we're tired of listening to it. Your, your story isn't anything new. Mm-hmm. And then one reporter says, oh, I understand you. I read Johnny Got His Gun. Right. And I'm like, oh. Right. Well, yes. And what was interesting is that Johnny Got, their, got His Gun, Got His Gun, was a book that was written in the 30s and then made into a movie starring Donald Sutherland. So that's where, where that Donald Sutherland comes from. And and the movie was made in the 70s about a book that was written in the 30s about the World War One. And so, again, you have this repetitive thing, like nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just, it's cyclical. It goes around and around and around. And I thought that that was really interesting. And in fact, okay, so just a weird random tangent here. Um, the movie wasn't highly acclaimed, like not a lot of people saw it, but then Metallica used parts of it in their music video for their music video for the song One, which is also about war. And eventually Metallica bought the rights to that movie so that they could continue to show it. And now the movie has a cult following because of Metallica. So, I mean, yay Metallica. But I just, I thought that was also all of that linked, you know where, our show notes. So. Yeah, so there are two of what are two um, of the greatest anti-war books. Both make a brief appearance in the film. So Johnny got his gun is there when uh, Tom Cruise is in the VA, mm-hmm. and then later on they have All Quiet on the Western Front, which is fantastic. I totally recommend reading it. Uh, it's one of those literary books. That I was like, oh, it's a literary book. It's going to be kind of dull, but no, it was it was um, incredible to read. And not- so I would. Re- Probably because we won't do it for this podcast, um, because we've already done a bunch of stuff that's similar and etc. But I would also recommend the movie of um, All Quiet in the Western Front. I remember seeing it in high school and just becoming completely undone. There's a whole aspect about the parallelism structure of the innocence of somebody drawing a bird that re- that happens twice, and then and then his death at the end is literally the last thing you see spoiler he dies um is is him getting shot from standing up in the trench to draw to get a better view of a bird and he's trying to draw and he gets shot in the head and he dies in the dirt and it is incredibly moving as another book to movie um that one like this one are movies that i'm glad that i saw but i don't know if i have the stomach to watch again so that's why i don't want to do it for the podcast honestly i just don't think i could i could do it again yeah sorry to step on you there no, not yeah. at all. Um, I don't think you stepped on me. Oh, good. Ouch. Ouch. Um, um, go ahead. Speaking of <laughs> steps, oh, what, that, that whole year he was in the hospital after breaking his leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, this book reminded me of The Jungle and that novel, um, I think it's by Sinclair Lewis. Upton Sinclair. Upton Sinclair. Uh, so The Jungle, written by Upton Sinclair, revolutionized the meat industry because he exposed how dirty it was in this book. It was like the VA is disgusting. Mm-hmm. And I don't think most Americans knew how bad it was. And it's been improved a great deal since then, but it's still highly problematic. Yes. Yes. So in one fact, of the things they don't do is a lot of therapy for soldiers, which is insane. They know about PTSD but to get therapy, you know, you can't advance. There are lots of stigmas attached to it. If soldiers want to get therapy, they have to pay for it themselves. 
Yeah, and even in the book, he references he went to the psychologist, and they basically yelled at each other. Like, it was like shout, yell therapy for a little while, but it didn't actually make him feel any better about the fact that he couldn't father children and, and have a normal sexual life in his future. Um, so, yeah, no, the, the, the depiction of the hospital was just awful and very, very graphic and, and gross and sad. And, like, you know, even with this bouncy 70s music on it, which kind of was this weird juxtaposition as the, as the men are all lined up, all getting group enemas, you know, and washed off like slabs of meat, like cars in an assembly line. And the depiction of that in the book was really difficult to read, too. That it's like these inhumane treatments of human heroes or humans yes. who had done heroic things. Um, and um, or who at the very least had suffered already greatly and don't shouldn't should not have to continue to suffer in that way. It's one of the things that Ron Kovic is now very you know has worked years since um, is doing is bringing light to some of the stuff in in VA hospitals and trying to get there to be more funding and more attention paid to the veterans and their their plans. Yeah, so in some of his interviews, he notes how much money that the U.S. spends on making these incredible weapons to kill people, but they don't do almost anything at all to protect their wounded soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. It's awful. And like you said, and like he has said, you know, you can love your country and still hold them to task. And I think that that's an important aspect of this, um, that we need to hold people to task and hold them accountable and say, you know, what are you going to do when people are injured and died? And, you know, what are you going to do when people come home and they have trauma and they need help? And if you don't have a plan for that, my lay person, um, armchair psychology over here, and also someone who has not served, but I'm going to say, if you don't have a plan, make a fucking plan before you do the thing. Don't just go off half-cocked. But um, I know that that's easier said than done. And yet, there's a lot of smart people well, in this world. Like Feel like they could make this a plan. is brand new we've yeah. we've gone to war for centuries we know it damages people mm -hmm. we know this and yet we're still underperforming to a criminal degree yeah yeah so speaking of that that was as somebody who's done a little bit of writing when i was reading his chapter about what he gave up for the war and he's you know, so angry. He's like, I gave my penis up for the war. I gave my dick up for the war. It's dead. I am a living dead person. And I could understand how that would be something that would be internal, how you would say it in your head to yourself all the time, but to actually put it on paper would be gut-wrenching. Mm -hmm. And the bravery it took to put that in is so painful. Yeah. And to not just um, use euphemisms or to allude to the impotence, but to be literally like, I will never be inside a woman. I will never feel this. I will never do this. This is this. This is useless. And I mean, the, his it's very graphic. And I thought that the movie did a very interesting thing. Obviously, it's making points about war and Vietnam, but it also made some points about masculinity and yes. um here it is right here um so i have this article that i will also put you guessed it in our show notes um and they're talking about how at the beginning of the movie 
to be a real man is all about physicality, right? You know, running, jumping, moving, you know, violence, um, the, the idea of winning and the idea of impressing women, right? Those are like the main things that were shown very clearly, very early on, like that's what real men are. And so, you know, he's, he's a wrestler, he's very athletic, and we don't have a boot camp scene, but we have his wrestling coach screaming, kill, 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 and you know, fight for it, and are you a real man, and all this stuff. And then he doesn't win the wrestling match, and he is fucking devastated. Like he literally cries on the mat, and all the women in the in the stands are like, ah, oh, and they're looking away. They're all ashamed and it's embarrassed. Shame. Oh my fucking Christ! Right after this whole thing about being like, do your best. Anyways, okay, so like we have that right, and and the, the boys playing war at the beginning, which ugh, in the woods with like the kid coming over the ridge, and you're dead, no I'm not, as he's laying there in the dirt, and the kid's like, I killed you, you're dead, and he's like, no I'm not, and he's still moving, but he's only moving the top part of him because the kid is sitting on him, oh my god, talk about foreshadowing, like it's so well done, anyways, but as the movie progresses, like he loses those four aspects of what becomes like would make him a man like his physicality now he is paralyzed you know his violence he tries to start a bar fight and is completely unsuccessful you know he gets beat up by by cops and protesters and he can't fight back and then they stick him back in his wheelchair and he doesn't have the stomach muscles to even hold himself in his wheelchair with his arms tied behind his back and he keeps falling out of it you know um the impressing of women like that's not a thing anymore. He's rejected by some of the prostitutes in the book um, and then finally finds a few who will actually give him love and attention. Um, in the movie, they did not have that. They had some other paraplegic who, not paraplegic, sorry. Yeah, no, paraplegic, who was being mocked by a prostitute for his inability to, to keep it up. Yes, Charlie, the William Defoe character. But you have this idea, like all these aspects of what make, and winning, He's not winning. He's not winning at anything now, you know? This 55-hour card game, nobody's winning, you know? These guys stuck in Mexico doing nothing. They're not winning. Um, he can't. They can't get into the, to the convention. They get a few in and they get kicked out. They try to retake it. They don't do it. Um, Nixon fucking wins, you know, in a landslide. Like, all of that stuff is being taken away from him. And so what does it really mean to be a man? And I, it doesn't really come around at the end in a way that I kind of wish it did, you know? Um, I know from reading that Ron Kovic did have a long-term relationship with a woman named Connie, who was in, who's also in a wheelchair and has written her own books. Um, but, you know, we don't see that in the movie. We don't see him choosing peace over violence because he's still protesting using the language of violence, you know, ramming things and pushing things and knocking things. You know, you could have had this aspect of him using his words as weapons instead of his body, but but we don't quite get that all the way there. Um, it's just so, alluded to a little bit at the very end. Yeah. So I think it did, the movie did a really good job of showing how like those ideas of what makes of masculinity are, are flawed and how they break down. But I, I almost feel like it didn't take the next step to show that he's literally still a man. He's still, um, and to get beyond the gender words, he is still a person of worth, you know? Yes. Um, his worth at the beginning was very much tied up with his masculinity and becoming a Marine and doing this and being a good Catholic boy and like all of that stuff. And his worth at the end was more about moving forward past his trauma and using the trauma for good. And we kind of got that in the movie, but I think we actually got it more in the book. I, so. 
So I was reflecting quite a bit on that as I was reading, and it is culturally true, and this isn't just us, it's multiple cultures, where virility is the absolute standard for men. You know, that you can perform sexually, that you can have children, and when that's taken away, well, what are you? And this had me thinking about trans individuals who have to go undergo these kind of um, very painful sort of self-reflections and what it does it mean to be an identity and to always want what's not going to be easy to get. Mm-hmm. Um, so ironically, uh, there's because of um, male transsexuals, the surgery to help injured warriors has gotten much better. Interesting. Yeah, uh, because there are a lot of um, devices that are designed to trigger kind of the pelvic region. You know, they, they're designed to go up like two and a half to three feet and do damage. Uh, so this was uh, something in one of Mary Roach's books. I believe it's in Gulp where she talks about this uh, because of the progress that trans men have made and pushed for in the medical community, this is helping U.S. soldiers quite a bit nowadays. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. But just kind of that idea of, you know, we really should redefine masculinity to not have this be this this toxic thing. And it's not bad to want to be sexual. It's not bad to want to have children. But that shouldn't be your only measure. And that's why I liked what you said, that you're a person of worth. Your worth doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we've, I think, as a society, we have started to make some strides in that area, at least in my echo chamber, for women. Because there's a lot of women who are choosing to not have children, who are saying, I'm still worthy, I still have value. And I think that, you know, when we started with the birth control ideas in, in, you know, women taking autonomy over their body, like, it gets into that it's a choice. Having children can be a choice, and you're not any less of a woman if you don't have a child. Although there is definitely still subject parts of the population who don't agree with me on that. I remember having a female family member tell me years ago before I had a child. At the time, I didn't want children. I was pretty vocal. Don't want children. And she said, well, that's sad because you'll never understand what it's like to be a real woman. You'll never have that real connection with your mother and your aunts and the other women in your family because this is like a universal woman experience. And I was like, no, it's not. <laughs> like, I still strongly disagree with her. We have this thing in common. We've all, um, like, like me and my mother. Yes, we've both been pregnant and we've both had a child. You know, children. I- I've had one. She had three. But like, there's plenty of other things that we don't have in common. And just because you're both pregnant does not mean those pregnancies are in any way, shape, or form the same. And then there's things I have in common with you, Jennifer, that I don't have in common with other fellow quote, you know, mothers and people and some of the things that you and I, well, (laughs) you and I have things in common that are in some ways more important than, you know, the shared experience of nine months of hell. I'm sorry. That's how I refer to my pregnancy. Um, so (laughs) just kidding. Just kidding. You're more than a walking uterus. I am more than a walking uterus. I also have a vagina. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> anyways okay, back to yes <laughs> but yes people are more worthy 
than their internal reproductive or their external reproductive organs. And I think that that is, is something that we as a society are still kind of coming to terms with, especially as people buck the heteronormative system of one man, one woman, have the babies, be happy ever after the end. Like now it's like, no, we can have two women and no kids or two women and five kids or any variation thereof, you know? And um, these people are still worthwhile and we don't need that typical family structure anymore to have family. And we don't need these aspects of, you know, progeny to have worth. And so um, hooray for the transgender community helping out the wounded what soldiers. What is penis, mom? Penis! penis! <laughs> <laughs> that is, I'm sorry to refer to that, but it was, it, it was making me laugh at the same time. I was just like, God damn it, that is so painful. It reminds me a lot of World War II literature where soldiers would come back and they want to talk about these experiences because it's killing them on in the inside. But stiff upper lip, you're not supposed to talk about it. And that's led to so much damage. Wasn't that um, The Sun Also Rises, the the Hemingway novel? Like, he'd been injured in the war. They kept saying his war injury, injured in the war. Yeah, it's it's heavily implied um, but we in the couldn't same way that... say it. Yeah. Well, it's like um, Hills Like White Elephants. It's mm-hmm. really about abortion. It's really obviously about abortion. They just never say abortion. Yeah, yeah. And So The Sun Also Rises? Well, no, it doesn't. <laughs> The, the title is a pun. That is a deliberate pun. Okay. Um. <laughs> so more important things to go about back to the book and movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Ron Kovac has become a really amazing person. Uh, he's done a huge amount to try and uh, develop uh, peaceful negotiations. Uh, he's been given tons of awards. Uh, speaking of, I thought this is interesting. Uh, Kovac gave... Tom Cruise's Bronze Star. Yeah. After the movie. So this was Tom Cruise's like first dramatic film. Yeah. So okay, this is interesting. Sean Penn, Charlie Sheen, and Nicolas Cage were among those considered by um, Stone to portray Kovac. Thank God none of that happened. Um, but the Stone's agent, Paula Wagner, had shown a platoon to Tom Cruise. Yeah, pl- platoon. Sorry, platoon. Platoon. After he'd expressed interest in working with Oliver Stone, Cruz met with Stone to discuss the role. The studio was concerned over the prospects of Cruz appearing um, as the dramatic lead. Stone, in particular, dismissed this f- f- the previous film that Tom Cruise had done, Top Gun, as a fascist movie, expressed that he was drawn to the actor's golden boy image. This is a quote from Oliver Stone. I saw this kid who has everything, and I wondered what would happen if tragedy strikes. If fortune denies him, I thought it was an interesting proposition. What would happen to Tom Cruise if something goes wrong? Kovac was also initially wary of Cruise's casting, but relented when the actor visited him in his home in New York. Cruise spent one year preparing for the role. He visited several veterans' hospitals, read various books on the Vietnam War, and practiced riding in a wheelchair. At one point during pre-production, Stone suggested that Cruz be injected with a chemical drug that would render him paralyzed for two days. The director believed that the drug would help him realistically portray the difficulties of being a paraplegic. Cruz was down for this, but the insurance company said no. (laughs) Well, they couldn't find anything that, you know, they knew wouldn't cause permanent damage. Permanent damage, yeah. (laughs) Anyways, so yeah, and then he gave Cruz his... uh, his bronze star during film production he did stay in his wheelchair as much as possible method acting yeah yep yeah so he did a really really good job in this he's a uh, freaking amazing in this movie i 
So I know he's got some personal things that are a little funky, but as an actor, if you're just going to judge him as an actor, he is a really, really good actor. Tom Cruise is an amazing actor with a weird religion. Sure. <laughs> I mean... There are a lot of really good actors who have weird religions. His weird religion is just a little bit um, weirder than most. It, it's like culturally understood to be weird in a way that um, other religions aren't skating very close to the line right here. Uh, all religions are weird, I'm just going to say. Sorry, that's my opinion. The opinions expressed yeah. right here are just mine. All of religions are weird. Some are just weirder because they are more different than the ones we grew up with, and therefore we consider some of them to be more normal and mainstream. But when you get down to it, they're all a little weird, and his is a little weird, and also um, a little bit of, like, of a pyramid scheme. So that adds to the weirdness. La la la, Tom Cruise is a freaking amazing actor with some weird stuff in his personal life. But his he was weird also stuff in his. Born on July third. Yes, and he was born on July third. I thought that was really cool. I will say that his weird personal life stuff isn't like about him going on anti-Semitic rants, cough cough, Mel Gibson, or you know, inappropriate sexual contact with people, cough cough, Kevin Spacey. So like, I'm fine. Tom Cruise can have his weird ass religion. Like, I, I, okay. Um, in any case, in back any case. to other stuff. Tom Cruise is cool. This movie was cool. It's one of the three of um, Oliver Stone's trilogy yes. of, of... So, yeah. Apocalypse Now, this is the second one, and the third one is Heaven and Earth. No, it's and Heaven and Platoon. Platoon is his first one. Like... Oh, you're right. It is Platoon. A note, um, Heaven and Earth, I think, is the least known of these trilogies. And if you do want to watch it, understand that it has some very brutal scenes, but Personally speaking, I thought it was the best out of the three. Oh, so I hadn't even heard of it. Um, um, it's from the perspective of a woman in Vietnam who marries a U.S. soldier and comes to live in America. Yikes. Okay, so that sounds very interesting. The brutal scenes part is a, is a turnoff for me. I, I will tell you, in, in for all honesty here, um, I closed my eyes during this movie... Uh, born on the 4th of July, when they went in after they had shot up the village that didn't have any rifles, and then they went in, and as soon as they walked in, and I knew what they were going to see because I'd read the book, and so thankfully I was watching with my partner, and I said, I'm going to close my eyes now. Please tell me when it is safe to open my eyes because I don't need to see dismembered body parts and, and blood and gore. I don't, I don't need it. The sound of the baby crying was enough to make me sob. So, um, yes, I cried then. I cried when he tried to give his speech at the parade and cry because and he couldn't because of the baby, I cried when um, when the the veterans got kicked out of the Republican group and then they re they basically rallied and then they went back and he was giving orders, kind of like this parallel back to him being a sergeant. And I you know it's futile, but they just like went back to fight. I cried then, and I fucking sobbed when his dad hugged him when he came back and he's in his wheelchair and his dad is like i've done these changes for the house and then his dad just kind of like trails off and is so overcome with emotion and just leans over to hug tom cruise i i cried i cried a lot and and that his dad was is was the real man you know <laughs> definitely could show his emotions was a hard-working man he, they talked about that both in the book and the movie, you know, and had made this... I wish that we could have seen the ramp better because in the book that was a big deal that his dad had made this special ramp for him. And I just... Yeah, it's sad, so... 
When it came to the scene at the convention, I read that scene maybe three times when I was going through the book. Just because it has so many parallels to what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the movie, it's very quick and confused. Uh, the way he narrates it, and he, he's yelling at these people, I don't have stomach muscles, I can't use my legs. He actually does go to the jail, and at one point he's yelling out, well, why don't you put me in cuffs? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's so much of this that's going on right now. It's astounding. Yeah. And yeah. the level of betrayals that you get, you know, when you have these people going, oh, you're a traitor, you're a traitor. And it doesn't matter what side he's on. It doesn't matter if he's pro-military, because when he is, he has people saying, you killed babies, you're a horrible person, we don't support the war. When he's anti-war, you have all these uh, people at the Republican National Convention going, you're a traitor, you're a commie, how dare you do this? Mm-hmm. And there's, on there's no winning for him. Mm-hmm. And to have to redefine what winning means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And and that, that kind of vitriol we definitely see nowadays, where if you're not on my side, you're on the bad side. And I mean, I'm biased. I think that there's one political party that's a lot more evil than the other. And uh, what I think. Um, but there is a lot of vitriol. Yeah, goddamn the Green Party. <laughs> yeah. Get the Green Party. They ruin everything. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's <laughs> Yes, that's exactly what I meant. Um, <laughs> but there is a lot of vitriol and a lot of us versus them and um, an inability to see the humanity of the other side. And that's horrible, troublesome, and leads to demagogues and just bad, bad shit, man. The world is full of some bad shit. And like we said, this book could have been written now because it is it is now. It, it is now. So one of the things I wish I had seen more in the book were was his transformation from becoming, you know, this very, to him, pro-America, mm-hmm. to understanding that you can criticize America and love your country, you know, to, to leave behind the, the love it or leave it and embrace a new philosophy. So some of that you know gets glossed over really quickly he had a roommate he read some books because he was bored i do think that it was like there were these little pebbles along the way and this i will chalk up to the fact that ron kovac was a soldier and an activist and not a writer um like when he went to boot camp that i think is where it started because they were so mean and he was like i'm here i volunteered i want to be here why are you so mean like he was just a little like confused like of course i'm gonna do what you say like i I, that's what i signed up to do but he that that started of the betrayal like i'm not a person to these people like it was all these glossy recruitment posters and i show up and i'm treated like shit like uh, that's not, wait, what? Like, he felt betrayed then. And then it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And so I felt like it was chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. Um, the movie but did that really well. The movie did a really good job of it, even without boot camp. Yeah, but, there's that one orderly he has conversations with, and you can see the orderly going, you know, <laughs> you white soldier, dude, I, I understand that you know, you've had this, but you don't know what it's like. You don't know what's going on over here. You don't know the whole story. Well, and it's like, oh, I'm so glad you are like have woken up to what's going on. Like some of us have been aware of it for a long time is basically, you know, the orderly saying like, we haven't, you know, whatever. And then that's also very precious. But that that's how like 
it's good when you become radicalized or when you become more sympathetic towards political causes or whatever and then you start to realize that it goes beyond just your experience and other people and that like oh yeah it's it's sometimes depressing to read about all of these things in the news and you just wish you could turn the news off and blah 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 um i'm a white lady with a lot of white lady privilege and i can just turn the news off but uh if i was a black lady i wouldn't have my white lady privilege and that would be my like forever life, you know, and I would never be able to take a break from that. And so once you've realized that you can't unrealize it, but it, it definitely informs how you look at the world. And so I'm with you. I think the movie did a better job of like showing that gradual thing. It just didn't have his protest as much as in the book when he got radicalized earlier and then he was more active and it just chipped away. And every time he was there and they were mean to him or they spit on him or he got arrested, it just fueled him even more. He's like, you, this, this betrayal, so much of the, of the soldiers and the police force, you know, hitting the protesters. And that was like this ultimate betrayal for him. I just... And that really sums up a lot of what he went through. And it just betrayal, betrayal. I did this for my country. I gave up this for my country and nobody respects me for it. And, Kovac, the writer, the person, talked a bit about this, where he was going to be what he saw in the movies. He wanted to be the glorified soldier who came home with a limp, mm -hmm. and people would love him for it because you sacrificed for your country and look at you. And then when he did come home, when he did sacrifice everything, it's it's a betrayal. Everything's a betrayal. Mm-hmm. And that's what got me about uh, when I was kind of looking at the, the history of Vietnam films. You have a lot of early films showing Vietnam vets as psychopathic. And then in the 80s, they're all action heroes. Hmm. So, you know, Rambo kills almost the entire town. And then in the 80s, you get Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where he's like, you know, this ridiculous creature. <laughs> Yeah, the evolution of how we see it, too, is, is has mattered. And that's yeah. why I think movies like this are very important, and books like this are very important. Uh, and again, I, I mean, I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad I read it. I don't think I have the stomach to do it again. My partner said, oh, yeah, I think I could watch this again because it was so incredibly well made. And I was like, okay, well, I'm glad for you. That is good. <laughs> that is good. One more scene that I want to get into, uh, because this is one of those, it's tragic funny. Mm -hmm. is when he and Charlie, William Defoe, oh, yeah. are fighting in the desert in the wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. And William Defoe, I bet you didn't kill any babies. And it becomes almost a competition for who did the most horrible stuff. Right. Gallows humor, for sure. But also, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, like, the cred. But, like, they both know how fucked up it is. And, Yeah. I, yeah. I, what I really liked with that scene was, okay, so they're fighting, they're, they're getting to this point of catharsis, right, you know, and like, they, they, they knock each other out of their wheelchairs, they roll down the thing, now they're stuck at the bottom of this hill, in the dirt, on the dirt, on the ground, they're like, well, what happens next? And this, this Mexican man shows up in his truck and he's like, you guys need a ride? Like, he's just <laughs> like, okay, I'll get your wheelchairs, like, this is what happens here, and, um, which I will tell you, uh, like so, the William Defoe character is obviously bigger in the in the movie than he is in the book, and that was fine. The place they call it um, Village of the Sun in the book. It's uh, and then they call it Dolce uh, Via Dolce in the movie. And um, I, I believe did... that actually uh, it was filmed in Pittsburgh. 
I'm not sure where they, they filmed that part, but I do know that I've done some research about whether the, these places existed. And they did, but they were less brothel pirate towns and more group homes. Um, so his experience of, of living there and then going and finding a like, that's all probably incredibly true and stuff. But the way it was portrayed in the movie where it was a little bit more rowdy and and um, much more about the just the drinking and the sex and yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's more of a light district. Definitely. It is not quite as accurate. In fact, there's this whole, and I'll link it on our show notes about this blog post of these people who are like, we went looking for this. This is not what's happening. <laughs> this was not a thing. Yeah. Like, the 17 minutes of this movie that take place in Mexico, basically, um, are, are portraying a version of, like, wish fulfillment that's not actually, it's much more, in the book, it's like, it's a group home. Some guys are just in their rooms writing letters. And, like, the big highlight is the mess hall, like, when everybody's, like, all the wheelchairs are lined up and people are eating together and that sense of community. And, of course, you know, he did have his prostitute adventures and stuff, but it's nothing like the drunken debauchery, you know, that was showcased in the movie. So I thought that was interesting. So. Yeah, it's the fallen hero journey. Mm-hmm. You have to fall before you can remake yourself. Yes. Yep. So, I think very heavy, but we recommend it. I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, worth our time. Yes. Yes. And it probably would hold up to to a subsequent viewing. I just personally can't, won't put myself. Yeah, and it's it's extremely timely in a way that I wouldn't have expected. Surprisingly timely. Yeah, when it comes to war, when it comes to protest, when it comes to the turmoil of the country, it's it's the same thing. Today's episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you by patrons, patrons like you, perhaps. So please visit us at patreon.com slash pagesandpopcornpodcast.com and you will find information about how you can support the show. But if you have no money, that's fine. We want your support anyways. Please like us and share us, rate us and review us. Tell a friend. Tell two friends. Hey, tell three friends that you like and enjoy this podcast. And that will be so wonderful. Thank you so much for that in advance because I know you're all going to do it and until absolutely <laughs> and until next time I'm Kaylia and that is Jennifer and um be safe out there whether you're protesting a war or be if safe you're protesting the war or if you're in a war and be kind to soldiers who have come home there you go be safe whether you're protesting a war or sheltering in place and don't forget to be kind to the soldiers who've come home but I already sang it earlier before I turned the microphone on, so none of you guys get to hear it. But enough of oh, my... I'm sure we can kind of persuade you. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy, Yankee Doodle Do or Die. A real life nephew of my Uncle Sam, born on the 4th of July. I have a Yankee Doodle sweetheart, she's my Yankee Doodle joy. A Yankee Doodle went to London just to ride the ponies, I am that Yankee Doodle boy.